We're continuing on in our series in Acts, and this series is so timely, not just for the church plant, but also for missionaries and for what God is doing, not just here, but globally. Today's word comes from Acts chapter 4, verses 1 to 4, and also from verses 23 to 31. This is the reading of God's word. And as they were speaking to the people, the priest and captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servant to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Amen. This is the reading of God's word. And now I would like to ask you to turn your attention to the preaching of God's word. Thank you, Pastor Jimmy. Good morning, my name is Dan. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Central. It's my privilege to share God's word with us this morning. Before we hear the word of God, would you please join me in a word of prayer? Father God, I pray that you would make my words clear and that you would give me boldness. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would do the work of changing and turning hearts towards Christ. I pray this in his name, amen. In the book of Acts, there are 28 chapters, and we just read in chapter 4, and already in chapter 4, we see persecution. This is the first instance of persecution we see in the book of Acts, and it's certainly not the last. It's not the last persecution we actually see against the church. Persecution will continue beyond Acts chapter 28 into the church life today and among believers. What is persecution? It is suffering. But it's a specific kind of suffering. And I want to ask you to ask yourself, have I experienced this kind of suffering ever in my life? Persecution is suffering because you are a Christian. Persecution is suffering because you are boldly living out your faith. The believers here in Acts chapter 4, they're being persecuted because they are believers. Because they're boldly, publicly living out their faith. This morning, I want us to explore in this passage the reasons why they were persecuted and reasons why we may be persecuted today. I also want us to look at their response to persecution and how we can respond to persecution today. We'll unpack this by looking at three different responses in this text. The first response we're going to look at is the Sadducees' response to the resurrection. What was their response? 
they were annoyed. In verse 2, it says that they were not just annoyed, they were greatly annoyed. And this word annoyed in the Greek, it's more intense than what we know in the English. In the Greek, it means to be troubled or displeased or offended or worked up. So why were the Sadducees so worked up? It's because Peter and John were teaching something. What is it that they were teaching? The resurrection of Jesus. Maybe you're thinking, what is the big deal about that? That they're teaching about the resurrection of Jesus. Isn't it a little extreme that they would go as far as to arrest them and put them in jail overnight? Our reactions, especially our anger, reveal a lot about our values, our idols, and what we love. The Sadducees' reaction, in particular their anger, reveals a lot about their values, what they love, and their idols. For some reason, and we'll get into it, Peter and John, teaching that Jesus rose from the dead, threatened their values, their loves, and their idols. This is why they persecuted them and arrested them. So what do we learn about the Sadducees? And I want to say that what we learn about the Sadducees, although they don't exist anymore, a lot of the underlying themes of their beliefs still exist today, and we actually encounter them as well. The Sadducees back then, they were Jewish religious leaders. They were wealthy. They were powerful and politically connected. And they maintained their social status and their wealth because they had no scruples about partnering with Rome and cooperating with them in terms of their beliefs. They did believe that there was a God, but they believed that God was distant. They believed that God was uninvolved and uninterested in our everyday affairs. This is called deism, that God created everything, but do not expect him to get involved with your problems. Don't expect him to help your marriage or your health. Don't expect him to be interested in geopolitics. And so although the Sadducees, they were religiously Jewish, they were practically deists. Because God is uninvolved, which is deism, it's a belief system without absolutes. Basically, God doesn't care. You can live your life however you want. Truth is whatever you want it to be. Morals are on your own terms. And that's appealing to a lot of people. Not only... Did the Sadducees believe that God was uninvolved and uninterested? They didn't believe in heaven or hell. They didn't believe in a final judgment. This also means that deism, it's a belief system, not only without absolutes, but it has no accountability. This is also appealing for a lot of people. And on top of that, the Sadducees, they've just flat out denied the resurrection. They didn't believe that the scriptures taught it. And they also didn't believe in the supernatural themselves. The resurrection would be a supernatural event because dead people don't typically rise from the dead. And maybe you can relate to that or you know people who relate to that, that miracles in the Bible are this intellectual hurdle for you. It doesn't fit within your intellectual scientific framework because dead people don't come back to life. But if you saw a miracle... Would it change your mind? For example, what if you saw a man who was born lame, never took a single step in his life, had to beg his way for a living, 
And then one day you saw him without medical intervention, running around, jumping around, fully healthy, fully healed. Would that change your mind at all that the miraculous is possible? The Sadducees, they saw such a miracle. Back in chapter 3, Peter and John healed a lame man who was lame his entire life, and now he was running and walking around. And the Sadducees, to their own admission, they say this is a notable sign, a.k.a. a miracle. And yet, what is their response? I think some of you here would say, maybe I should reconsider the supernatural, that there maybe is a God Maybe miracles are possible, and maybe the resurrection is possible, but that's not the Sadducees' response. Although this man was standing with Peter and John, and they admit this is a notable sign, it is a miracle, their response is they're annoyed, and they arrest Peter and John. Why didn't they want to believe? Why weren't they at least open to, okay, if this miracle happened, maybe Jesus really did rise from the dead? It's because of this. They didn't want to believe in the resurrection. They didn't want to. That's what it boiled down to. On one hand, I, I think there are people who are honestly working through their doubts about Christianity. And on the other hand, I think there are those who wouldn't budge no matter how much proof or evidence they have. Maybe you know people like that. They say, yeah, I'll be open to it or I'll believe if you can prove that there's a God. If you can prove to me the miraculous or that Jesus rose from the dead, I'll finally believe. And they're always asking for more and more proof. And then they'll finally believe. But I don't believe that. I think that no matter how much proof you give them, they won't believe. It's just a disguise for them pretending that they're open-minded. The Sadducees' denial of the resurrection, it wasn't just doctrinal or intellectual. One Christian writer, he says that modern archaeologists, they uncovered a few Sadducee homes, and they described it as the most opulent to date in Jerusalem. And he says that wealth seems to have been the number one belief of the Sadducees. They didn't want to believe in the resurrection. Let me illustrate it this way. Imagine you're driving on the freeway, you're in your lane, and then a 40-ton, 18-wheeler swerves into your lane suddenly going 80 miles an hour. The only way the Sadducees could maintain their lifestyle, their wealth, their status, is if everyone stays in their lane, including God. And God would stay in his lane if deism is true. He won't get involved. But the resurrection of Jesus is that 40-ton, 18-wheeler swerving into their lane going 80 miles an hour. If the resurrection were true, it's going to upend their lives. It's going to change their beliefs and their values and what they love. It's going to mess with their politics. It's going to mess with their money. It's going to mess with their stuff. And they didn't want that. They didn't want to believe in the resurrection. And so they arrest Peter and John. They don't want other people believing in the resurrection. What did the resurrection of Jesus, if true, what would that mean for the Sadducees? It would mean a few things. The first is that God is personal. It means that God is personal. Deism, like I said, believes in an impersonal, uninterested, unknowable God. The resurrection would mean, no, God cares. 
and he is involved. And how you live matters. And you will be judged. And you will be held accountable. The Sadducees knew they were corrupt. They didn't want a God who would get involved with that. There isn't a more, there is not a more direct act of involvement with humanity than God sending his own son to take on full humanity and flesh, to die on the cross for our personal sins, to go through life and all of its ups and downs, to rise from the dead, and then to invite us to have a personal relationship with him and life everlasting in heaven if we would repent and place our faith in Jesus. And this God graciously and freely offers that to all. That's pretty personal. And that is pretty involved. It also means that Jesus is God. If Jesus is risen, that means he is God. And whatever he says is final, absolute, objective, ultimate truth. The Sadducees only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament. If Jesus is God, they would have to accept everything because Jesus accepted everything. This means that the Sadducees couldn't just pick and choose what they wanted to believe. It means you can't just pick and choose what you want to believe. It's all or nothing. It also means that salvation is exclusive. If Jesus is risen, then he is exclusively the savior of sinners. This would put an end to the Sadducees' income stream through the temple, since salvation is now, by God's grace alone, through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. And fourthly, it means that Jesus will judge. In Acts chapter 1, the angel says that Jesus will return in the way that he left. And we know that when he returns, he will make all things new, but he's also going to judge every single one of us, and we will give an account of our lives. Those who are believers have no fear of condemnation because of what Christ has done on the cross. But those who are not in Christ, who have not placed their faith in him, they will be held accountable for their lives. And we know what that judgment looks like. It looks like everlasting hell. Sadducees don't want to hear that. A lot of people today don't want to hear that either because it messes up their life. It messes up what they believe. The Sadducees aren't alone in their beliefs. The researcher George Barna He says that the dominant worldview among younger generations today is some version of what's called moralistic therapeutic deism. What does that mean? Moralistic. It means you believe you should do good and that people who are good will go to heaven. Therapeutic. They believe that you should just live in such a way and do whatever makes you feel good. And then deism. There are no absolutes. Everyone marches to the beat of their own drum. For the younger generation, and maybe you, maybe you believe a version of this. And the point is this, that the resurrection of Jesus, it invalidates any version of moralistic therapeutic deism. If Jesus is God and he is risen from the dead, then he defines what is good. And he directs how you ought to live your life because he is king and he is Lord. And it means that there are absolutes. There are absolutes. God has an opinion on every hot button issue and topic today. And there is a right and wrong as laid out in scripture. But I do want to mention this as well, that the resurrection, it not only means that there are moral absolutes, 
And here's the beautiful thing about the fact that Jesus is risen. There are also personal guarantees. What do I mean by that? There's so much insecurity and uncertainty today. When you look at the economy, elections, global conflicts, global tensions, pandemics. And I think the message of security in Christ is so important for this generation that because we are forgiven or because Jesus is risen, we are forgiven. Our status and our destiny are absolutely secure. There's a personal guarantee. Because Jesus is risen, there's no recession when it comes to God's love for us. The resurrection of Jesus, you would think more people would embrace and love, but there is a sinful side to humanity and obstinance. And people don't want there to be absolutes. They want to live their lives however they want, such as the Sadducees. And that's one of the reasons why there's persecution even today. As attractive as you believe the gospel to believe, to be if you're a believer, sometimes we scratch our heads and think, wait, why wouldn't more people, when they hear this, accept freely God's grace and forgiveness and life everlasting if they would believe that Jesus is the Son of God, died on the cross for my sins, rose from the dead. And we see this in the book of Acts as well. There are thousands who come to faith and believe, and yet there are thousands who reject and persecute believers. This opposition is expected. Even today, we should expect people to be annoyed at the resurrection. It should not surprise us that people are troubled, they're offended, and they're worked up about what Christians believe, especially when it comes to the exclusivity of Jesus in terms of salvation. What might this opposition look like today? I think what it looked like for Peter and John, in a lot of ways, is what it's going to look like today and what you can expect What did the Sadducees do? They outnumbered Peter and John. There's the masses. They arrested them in order to silence them. They tried to intimidate them, and they also outclassed Peter and John. They brought in the elites, the rulers, the elders, the high priestly family, and the scribes. The scribes, they were experts of the law, and they were there because they wanted to trap Peter and John in something that they said so that they could get them arrested or possibly get Rome to crucify them the same way they got Jesus crucified. And that last one, I I think we can all relate to. These days, we know that saying one wrong thing can be catastrophic. I read in the Atlantic that there's a particular kind of of anxiety on the rise because of social media, a new kind of anxiety. It says that social media threatens to make every slip up in a, an extinction level event, socially and professionally. Do you feel that way? Like you're really careful with your words because if it gets recorded, if it gets posted, if it goes viral, it's an extinction level event for you socially and professionally. These days in this country, it doesn't take threat of imprisonment or torture to cause us to lose courage. It just takes a tweet or a post. It's not the fear of violence that keeps us reserved when it comes to our faith. It's the fear of going viral. 
if we're going to live out our faith boldly and publicly, pub- publicly we, can and ex- we can and should expect persecution. But when that persecution does come, how do we respond when we are outnumbered by the masses, intimidated or threatened? And this is where I want us to look at the believer's response to the Sadducees and the persecution and what we can learn from them. Second point is, the believer's response to persecution is prayer. And this is not a surprise. We're like, yeah, of course they prayed. But I think the content of their prayer actually surprised us more. They didn't just ask God to protect them, protect us from persecution or remove persecution. They don't panic. They actually praise God. For what in particular? For his sovereignty. The first two-thirds of their prayer acknowledge and praise the sovereignty of God. Why would they acknowledge God and praise him for his sovereignty? The sovereignty of God means a few things. The first is that God is all-powerful. They needed to be reminded of this, especially when persecution came their way. They're quoting Psalm 2, which says, God who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. He is all-powerful. Everything that everyone is trying to do against the church, against his people, it's not going to work out. It's going to fail. God is the one in control. Secondly, God has a plan. This is what it means that God is sovereign. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And in verse 25, they rage, and when they do, they all plot in vain. It's God who has a plan, and his plan will be fulfilled. And it also means this, that persecution is part of God's sovereign plan. When believers are persecuted, missionaries are persecuted, the church is persecuted, a lot of times we can think that something's going wrong. But let me say this, if you are persecuted for your faith, if our church is persecuted, you're doing something right. I would actually say we're doing something wrong if we're not being persecuted. The best example of this is Jesus, who lived a perfect, obedient life to do the will of God and to glorify him. And where did that get him? It got him crucified. And here in Acts, it says that that was actually part of God's sovereign plan as well. And so if you're being persecuted for your faith, don't think that something is wrong or that God is forgetting you, forsaking you. No, you're doing something right. The final one-third of this prayer, this is probably what we were expecting. They devote this prayer to their request for boldness that they can continue speaking God's word. And I want to make a point here about the necessity of speaking, that the gospel has to be communicated. They don't just pray for more miracles and more miracles. They do pray for miracles that God will continue to do that, but it's important that we understand the purpose of miracles in Scripture. Whenever you see miracles throughout Scripture, the purpose of miracles isn't just to show off. It's to authenticate God's message and messengers. So that people would know, okay, they're actually Jesus' disciples or they're actually prophets from God. But they have to, at some point, actually speak and communicate the gospel. And this is what gets believers persecuted. It's when we actually communicate 
and share. Miracles without a message, they're signs that point to nothing. It's the speaking and communicating that points people to Christ and in the gospel, their need for repentance because they are sinners and God's free grace and offer to save them if they would believe in Jesus. Believers, they weren't persecuted because of miracles. Peter and John weren't persecuted because they healed that lame man. They were persecuted because that lame man being healed proved that the message that they were sharing about the resurrection was true. Lastly, I want us to look at what is God's response to their prayer? So we looked at the Sadducees' response, and we look at the believers' response to persecution. They prayed. How does God answer their prayer? And I hope this encourages us to pray more for boldness, and to live out our faith publicly. God's response to their prayer, they're filled with the Spirit and shaken. What is this kind of boldness and where does it come from? Uh, the word boldness in this passage, it's not a general kind of courage. It's actually a, a specific kind of boldness. It's a boldness that is, by definition in the Greek, related to speaking and communicating. It means unreserved in speech, open, frank, without concealment, and without ambiguity. And I think this last definition about boldness is really important for us today, that it's without ambiguity. That it's not enough to just tell people, I go to church. It's not enough for your coworkers or friends to know, I believe in God. That's pretty ambiguous. Believers who are ambiguous about their faith are not persecuted. They will never be persecuted. And it is tempting to be ambiguous about our faith. I'm tempted at times. There are times when I, I feel pretty bold and I'll be very open about the gospel. There are other times, I'll be honest, I, I don't want to go there at that time. People may ask me, oh, what do you do? Like, what a perfect time to be evangelistic and share. But there are times I'll be like, oh, yeah, I'm a pastor. And I'll leave it at that. What, is, what does that communicate? Well, it communicates that I must be pretty serious about religion. But me sharing that I'm a pastor says nothing at all about the sinful nature of humanity, God sending Jesus to die for sinners, and that the only way we are saved is if we receive salvation by God's grace through faith in Jesus and repentance. And that apart from Jesus, that we cannot be saved and we stand condemned and that condemnation looks like eternal hell. Me saying I'm a pastor does not communicate any of that. You saying I go to church does not communicate the gospel. I believe in God or I pray does not communicate the gospel. I go to a small group or I'm at a church retreat. That does not communicate the gospel. Don't get me wrong. I think that just putting it out there is actually very good and important and maybe may open up a future conversation. But that future conversation has to happen. And here's the thing, I think we all know if we remain ambiguous, we will remain unpersecuted. We know that those may lead to some very difficult conversations. And this is why the believers had to pray for boldness, because it doesn't come naturally, it's supernatural. It has to be God-given. Ambiguous Christians don't get persecuted. Believers knew this. That's why they had to pray. So God, we need boldness from you. 
or else left to ourselves, we're going to keep our mouths shut. That's our instinct. I do want to mention, and this is important, that being unambiguous about our faith isn't the same as being hostile or disrespectful. Tim Keller, he says this, if we are only persecuted and few or no people are finding faith or being attracted to Jesus through us, then we are likely being persecuted for our tactlessness. If we are never persecuted, then we are likely compromising or being too quiet about our faith. One of the most worrisome things about the church in the West is that we are not seeing much persecution or attraction. And surely that is an indictment. We're seeing neither. This bold communication is a major theme in the book of Acts. The word speak, laleo in the Greek, it's used 56 times in the book of Acts, more than any other book in the New Testament. What were the acts of the apostles and the early believers in the work of the Holy Spirit? They were doing a lot of speaking. A lot of speaking. That's how the church grew. Not because of miracles, because the believers were speaking boldly and unambiguously. This is how Redeemer Church grew in New York, led by Tim Keller. He says this, In Redeemer's early years, the only way we were able to have a community filled with doubters was because church members were not afraid to identify themselves publicly as Christians to others they worked with and lived near. That's why Redeemer grew to the size that it's at today. It's not because Tim Keller was out there in Manhattan preaching the gospel and trying to evangelize by himself. It's the members of the church who, in of all places where you would expect persecution, Manhattan, were public about their faith and bold and unambiguous. And so Redeemer attracted so many doubters, people who had never stepped into a church. And this is my challenge to CCSC. This is my challenge to you. Pastor Harold Dinko, they share that one of the reasons why we're church planning in Artesia, led by Pastor Dinko, is because we know that church plants, they are more effective at reaching non-believers than larger, more established churches. Our goal is to reach more non-believers with the gospel, that they may be saved and know the love of God in Jesus Christ. The reason why we're doing that is because Pastor Harold, our elders and leaders, we are very aware that the majority of our growth, CCSC, the past few years has been through church transfers. That's people leaving one church and coming here. And that's fine and that's great. There are reasons and seasons for that. But as Christians, what we long for is for people who have never known Christ to know Jesus. We don't want people to leave one church and to come here. We want people to leave their idols and come to Christ. We want people to leave their sin and to be forgiven in Jesus. That's what we long for. The thing about church transfer is this. If a church is going to grow via church transfer, you don't have to be bold. It takes no boldness, no boldness required to get somebody to leave, a Christian to leave one church and then to come to this church. Churches that grow via conversions are bold. Churches that grow via conversions, it's because the members are bold 
and public about their faith. My challenge for those of you maybe considering joining the Artesia plant, you need to be bold and you need to pray for boldness. For those of us who remain here at Fullerton, we praise God when we see all these infant baptisms. It's a a testament to the way God works covenantally through our families. We love that. But the way that you can tell whether or not we're growing via conversion or if we're growing via church transfer is on baptism Sundays, do we see adults being baptized? That's how we can tell. And that's what we long for. Would you begin praying for that? God, make us a bold church. Make me a bold believer. And it's not just up to the pastors and elders to be bold. We must all be bold. And that we would celebrate and long for when we see adults who have not known Christ leaving their old lives, not just their old churches, but their old lives and becoming new creations in Christ Jesus. Let's not be misled as well that being in a country where there is religious freedom that that negates our need to be bold. I think some people think that. We live in a religiously free country. We don't have to be bold. That's not true. If that were true, then the fastest growing churches in the world would be in this country. That's absolutely not a fact. The fastest growing churches in the world, guess where they're at? Number one, Iran. They don't have a lot of religious freedom. Guess where the second fastest growing church is in the world? Afghanistan. They don't have a lot of religious freedom either, either, and they're not fans of Christians. So why are they growing when interviewed? When, when Iranian believers were asked, they said, boldness and prayer. That's why they're growing so fast. And I pray that we will be challenged to be the same. But it is hard, and I just want to look over what are the reasons why it is difficult to be bold. And we can be honest and own up to it. The first is we do fear people. I fear people, their opinions, their reactions, their confrontations. We also fear failure. If you're a perfectionist, and I bet there are many of you here, more than perfectionists long for success, they fear failure. And if that's you, you're not going to be bold or outspoken about your faith. Because you want that evangelism to be perfect. You don't want them to reject Jesus. You don't want to look bad because you're a perfectionist. Thirdly, critical upbringing. People who grew up in households that were highly critical or unsupportive, they're more likely to have fear of failure. And this is not uncommon, especially in Asian homes. They felt like they could never live up to their families or parents' expectations during childhood, and they may continue with this fear of making mistakes as adults because their acceptance was based on performance and failure meant a loss of affection or love. And if that's you, let me remind you that Peter, the apostle Peter here in Acts chapter 4, he also failed big time. He denied Jesus three times. And yet in the book of Acts, we see a very fearless and bold Peter. So what gives? At the end of the Gospel of John, Jesus is on the beach while the, some disciples are fishing. And Jesus is on the beach by a charcoal fire. And that phrase, charcoal fire, is actually only used twice in the Gospels. 
where Jesus is on the beach. And then when Peter denied Jesus three times, there was a charcoal fire. And so you can imagine that when Peter returned to the shore and he met Jesus, how triggered he was about his past mistakes. Here's a charcoal fire. Here's Jesus. I denied him three times. He's probably traumatized. And Jesus knows this. He knows exactly what he's setting up. It's in the face of Peter's greatest failure that Jesus accepts him and forgives him and restores him. And if we're going to be bold as believers, and we're not going to fear other people and their approval, you need to know how much you are accepted and approved and loved by Jesus. That you don't have to work for his love, and you can't lose it. You are cherished and treasured by him. And so the loss of approval in this world, you are unfazed because you know that you have the smile of your heavenly father. And that makes us bold and fearless. The approval we have in Christ far outweighs the disapproval of others. And this makes us bold. Lastly, we see that the believers, they were filled with the spirit. This is what God did for them. What does it mean to be filled with the spirit? And we can pray for this as well. God, fill us with the spirit. It means that you are led and influenced by the spirit. What does that look like? In Luke chapter four, Jesus was full of the spirit. What happened? Well, look at this. Jesus, full of the spirit, returned from the Jordan, was led by the spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. That's what it means to be filled with the spirit. You are led and influenced by the spirit. And the Holy Spirit is going to lead you to hard places. It's not a fun prayer to pray. When we are led by the spirit, just like Jesus, we'll be led to hard places. It's where God wants us to be. And there are a lot of times it's like, that's not where I want to be. But that's what they prayed for. That's what God gave them. If we never find ourselves in difficult places because of our faith, difficult situations because of our faith, it's likely we're not filled by the Spirit. Now, every believer is filled by the Spirit because we're saved. But this is like a different kind of being filled by the Spirit. This leading and influencing. And this is what I want to encourage us to pray for as well. Because left alone, we will not lead ourselves to those difficult places and situations. Lastly, God shook the place. It says the place shook where they prayed. What was the point of that? It reminded the believers of two events. The first is when Jesus was crucified, the earth shook. And then second, when Jesus rose from the dead, the earth shook. And so God shook the place when they prayed for boldness. Because what is it that they need to be reminded of? Jesus died for you. You're forgiven. You don't have to look to the things of this world status, wealth, to find your sense of worth. Because if that's the case, it's going to be too hard to give that up. We're not going to want to be bold. Secondly, that Jesus rose from the dead, that even if you are persecuted and it hurts and it's hard and you're suffering, Jesus' resurrection means that you will rise from the dead. You will have a glorious resurrected body. 
So you don't even need to fear those who can kill the body and soul. Jesus is risen. Our boldness is rooted in the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ. If we believe that, we know that this is what people need to hear. And it emboldens us to not be fearless to share that with them. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that you would make us bold. Holy Spirit, would you fill us even now? Lead us to people who are ready to hear the good news. Open our mouths to talk unambiguously about Jesus. And Jesus, we thank you that because you live, we are accepted and loved. Our identity, destiny are secure, and we too will share in your resurrection. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.